0: Nigel, it's great to have you back on the podcast. I don't need to ask you where you are because I can see it over your shoulder. But of course, this is audio only. I can see the Empire State Building, so either you've got a very sophisticated <laughs> screensaver, or you're sitting very high up in New York.
1: I'm sitting very high up in New York. I have a phenomenal view from my apartment, and it's uh, it's very
0: special. I, I won't complain one, one, one bit at all. But uh, good to hear you as well. Good to see you. Well, I'm glad you're looking really happy because I was informed that today, when we're recording this on January the 16th, is Blue Monday which is the day that everyone's meant to feel really fed up and do nothing. But you're looking very upbeat. So I'm hoping that actually this is good for you. I'm always upbeat. You, you know me better than that.
1: And actually, funny, funny you should say about Blue Monday. I was reading something earlier online that said Blue Monday was made up by travel agents many, many moons ago to ensure
0: people have booked more holidays It was that time of the year or well, greetings cards companies making out valentine's day and mother's day that's the other one as well that's a whole di- that's a whole different podcast <laughs> i think we're getting into there. it really is it really is that's the grumpy old men podcast but listen you may have over twenty five thousand followers on linkedin but there are some people out who out there who don't know who nigel walsh is so quick intro and you can pick up anything I've, i haven't put in here that's important managing director insurance at google cloud in the US, hence why you are based in the US. And we like to give some context for companies here. So I I looked it up just now, and Google is valued at 1.2 trillion US dollars, which for those that aren't quite sure how their units work out is uh, $1,200 billion, rounding up a bit. So obviously, really key role, going to hear a little bit more about that, plus what's going on in the world around you. But anything I've missed, missed out of your own bio before we kick off?
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny when you say those things. It's one of those companies that you work for that you never actually have to say what you do. You just say, hey, I work for Google, or, or in my case, Google Cloud specifically, because everyone knows what it does. Um, but Google, and specifically Google Cloud, which is where I am, is the organization that helps insurers and many other industries, as you might imagine, bring capability to life from the technologies that uh, made Google famous in the first place. So whether it's cloud, AI, machine learning, insights, and so much more. So it's a a true honor and a a, a real privilege to work with
0: them. And and Google Cloud itself is no scrappy startup, is it? I mean, you you must be having a valuation into billions of dollars in in the cloud side of the business alone.
1: Well, you say not a scrappy startup, but I'd actually argue that we are a scrappy startup. And I actually really like that about this in that we, we're we a couple of years old, you know, five or six different years old and growing at a reasonable clip of 36 37% quarter on quarter. Um, So you could argue, and actually one of the reasons I think I like the environment so much is that we do think we're in the startup space in in many instances. We were late to the cloud path. You look at any of the interviews that any of the execs and Thomas Curie and our CEO have done, it's the recognition that we were third to the game behind many others that were out there already. But that means we can get to learn from lots of things that have gone on before us. So I think that's actually one of the reasons I, I truly enjoy this, that we are playing catch up in some places but actually leveraging the things that we've done at a planetary scale elsewhere.
0: Hello. Well, if you are a regular listener, you may have been wondering what happened to my usual preamble at the start. or maybe not. I asked my Instec colleagues for some feedback on the podcast introduction, and they politely suggested that I jump straight into the chat with our guests. So I'm not going to hang around any longer other than to say if you like what you're hearing and you're interested in what we're doing at Instec to help insurers and technology companies get to know each other and figure out the innovation that really works, then you can find out more about us, our events, reports, membership, and a whole lot more at www. Dot or email us hello at instec.co. Another great guest this week, as you may have already noticed. So back to Nigel. Of course, you yourself are also known for your, as you kind of alluded to earlier on, your enthusiasm for insurance. I think you've even coined the term, I love insurance and you write quite widely. And you also, Nigel, you used to do predictions for insurance, but I was looking to see if you did anything last year and you didn't do them. I just wondered, is that because... You weren't doing too well at your predictions, or you got too busy working in a big organization.
1: Not <laughs> neither of the two. Actually, I I actively took a year off of writing, so purposefully decided to go. Let's pause. I love reading. I love consuming. I love engaging, as you all know from either podcasts and stuff online or whatever else. And I've been writing them for some time. And I actually work. One of the things I actually also do is I score them each year. And I will be, you, you'll see them online later today. I've got them for this year going forward. But I actually went back five years and I was wondering it's, it's back to the age old quote that says, We overestimate what we can do in one year, but underestimate what we can do in 10 years. So insurance for me is, or well, for many, is a slow moving industry. And, and ironically, I was out last night with a group of people that had nothing to do with insurance. In fact, they're a completely different industry, all in music and media and everything else. And when people see that you're in insurance, it's the same old story you get all the time. They go, oh, that doesn't sound very exciting. And, and then they hear me talk enthusiastically about why I think it's insurance is important, whatever else, and what's going on. And you start to get a sense for why people either engage or don't engage and why these things matter or um, the predictions don't change as quickly. So actually my my take this year is rather than go back and scoring last year's because I didn't actually publish them. I had written them, but didn't publish them. I actually went back to 2017 and thought, actually, what's actually changed in the last five years? And it's, it's fascinating to see. I,
0: mean, I, I can whiz through some of them if that's appropriate. Something you said in there, actually, that I think is, is a very helpful comment. And it, it was talking about how things don't move as fast as you think. There's a phrase I've heard which is actually alludes to what happens when you're in the desert and you see distant mountain ranges which is don't mistake a clear view for a short distance meaning you can see where things are going to go or where you want to go to I guess if you're crossing the desert but doesn't mean you're going to get there there quickly but I just want to come back and give you a chance to to publicly disclose your predictions and uh, my second suggestion is if you want someone to score your, your predictions for you rather than do your own. Very happy to help you that in the future. But I'd love to hear what a couple of those predictions are.
1: Maybe I start by going backwards a little bit and pick one or two of the things that we had back all that time ago. And maybe I also move from predictions to observations. So back then I started talking about things like speed. It was a constant theme for 2017. There was a huge rush to go and do things. My second one was the conversations around AI, cognitive and machine learning. Well, I don't think that's changed in any way, shape or form. In fact, I finished my prediction with everyone has an algorithm. I'm not sure what they actually mean sometimes, but everyone's definitely got an algorithm. I also talked about a line of business shift from personal lines. If you you remember very early on, that everyone focused on personal lines because it was easy. It was a low hanging fruit, specifically in the UK, and I thought that was going to change to more SME, business and commercial lines. I thought about scale and profitability. I think that's self-serving. Let me finish. The last one that I thought was really interesting was orchestration. And what I meant by orchestration, if you dig into the prediction, was embedded insurance. And here we are five years later. I don't think many folks have a conversation at all without the words orchestration or embedded or API. So I don't think I was far off back then Back to your point, whilst there was a clear view, I still don't think we're anywhere near some of those things right now. And we're going to keep doubling down on each one of those as we get closer and closer to that target in the desert.
0: We know we're all big fans of sustainability now, so I think it's very public-spirited of you to recycle your predictions uh, and reuse it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think
1: it's really interesting. That, that was me going back five years. I think going forward, I do think there's some things in here as I've shifted country from the UK to US, the scale of things here are just phenomenal. I, I, you know, I've been an avid fan of the podcast, as you know. Whether I'm ironing, cutting the grass, washing cars, whatever else, every Sunday morning, and I, I'm fascinated as the pandemic's allowed you to get guests from all over the world, hearing what's different in the US to to the UK, to to Asia, and much more. Obviously, in my in my role and what I do day in day out it would be remiss for me not to talk about what cloud is doing for everyone going forward. And in fact, not a single startup I've met in the last five to seven years has not started out on cloud and, and moved forward. What that means to incumbents is actually really interesting. I've mean, We talk a lot about big bets, and if I boil that down into two of my favorite words, one of those is evolution and one of those is revolution, I think we're stuck still doing evolutionary stuff. Now, that's not a bad thing. I still don't think, if you remember all those years ago, we always talked about what's insurance's Uber moment or Netflix moment or Blockbuster moment. I still don't think we've had that revolutionary thing that's going to disrupt insurance. In fact, Oliver Ralph in the FT last week had an article about insurance disruptions never really turned up. I'm still not sure that revolutionary piece is and where it will take place, and I'm not sure it's ever going to come. I, I, I could dig into that a lot more, but
0: it will take place in a very different way, I think. You'll love this as you're a cyclist. So there's this bicycle shop where I bought my last bike and they used to be called Revolution, but they got sued or some kind of warning letter from a lawyer saying they couldn't call themselves Revolution. So they knocked the R off and they called themselves Evolution. Is that what's happened with insurance?
1: (laughs) Well, maybe like insurance and reinsurance, the R needs to be in parenthesis to go, actually, we don't mind what we do as long as we keep moving forward. So whether you're evolving or you're evolving, there is certain things that are going on. Yeah, I love that. I I do love that. That's very
0: good. Those are all moments in parentheses. And now I want to come back to that scale point you made there as well. So you you, you kind of tripped over it a little bit in your uh, list of predictions. But I think you then gave us a bit of the answer on the US. So scale and profitability. What were you predicting on that one? We'll come back to disruption one in a minute. But I just want to make sure before we go too far away from your comment, I wasn't too sure exactly what you meant by that.
1: So back in 2017, I I used it as a way to say the startups that everyone had really, really great ideas and there's a whole host of other things in there about garages and and labs and, and accelerators and all that sort of good stuff. But they were all point ideas and we never actually got any of those companies into scale. And I think what we've seen over the last couple of years for certain is those small, wonderful Ideas and digitization or digitalization type things, people go, that's great. How do we get to scale across an organization or how do we get to profitability? And I think, given the crisis last year and what's going on in the funding markets and so much more, the focus now on startups, runways, profitability, and how we actually get across or outside of one line of business into multiple lines of business or multiple areas. Is without question true. So I'd say that's that was that's always been true. The focus on it is very much here and now.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I see a lot of MGAs in particular, or InsurTech MGAs, great idea. But for me, and I think a lot of people, it's always about how do you scale your distribution. And it's a good link that to lemonade, which is always a, a kind of good bellwether of what's happening in in the industry. I was just looking at for a different reason, looking at how lemonade stock price performed, and they. I'll round the numbers a little bit, but they went to market at about twenty-six dollars, settled out at fifty dollars a stock on the first day, went up to something like one hundred and seventy dollars, and now down round about sixteen dollars. So you know, quite a a roller coaster up and then down again. But if one of the things that's always interested me about lemonade is, and this comes back to your disruptors point, is if you're going to disrupt the insurance industry with a product that's already pretty well established, you need to spend a lot of money on marketing and. Geico and Progressive, who you'll know in the US, are two of the biggest and quite innovative insurance companies in their own right, have marketing spend in the region of like $1.5 to $2 billion. Lemonade is in the region of $100 million. So I guess the question for you is, as you sort of reflect on that scale, but then how do you scale? How do you think about that? If you're going to come in as like you a know, big, highly funded company like Lemonade, a lot of marketing, very well-known but still struggling with hundred million to spend on marketing because you know these companies are like outspending them by ten or twenty times more. What does that mean for you know, the future of somebody trying to sort of truly disrupt an established business?
1: I always have been and remain a huge fan of lemonade. I was actually talking about it over dinner last night, but as an example of what folks in New York might choose for renters or pet or whatever it might be. I think you've got the you've got the incumbents in every industry that will pay the money to maintain position and mind share for for what's going on. If you look at lemonade customers from memory, most of their clients that they bring on board have never had insurance in the past. So on a renters scale, that's folks that have moved into an apartment or whatever it might be or are getting renters insurance, like like myself, that's insured with with insured with lemonade. And then allowed to grow out from there. And if you look at Lemonade's evolution from renters through their partnerships around pet insurance or life insurance, their acquisition and entry into multiple states, I think they've always been, and I've always said this about Daniel and the team, wonderful orators about what disrupting an industry looks like and why you should come to someone like a Lemonade. And actually, the experience that you get through AI, through chatbots, through the acquisition process it's just very different. I think I've slowly started to believe that it's more of a generational change. and I've always used my kids as examples about what they do and, and how they acquire things and how they engage. I can't imagine them going to an agent or a broker in the same way that you would have done or our parents would have done. But I can absolutely imagine going onto a chatbot and acquiring all the things they want in a really seamless beautiful conversation that's all digital and easy to, easy to use and do. So I think back to my point about going back five years is almost driven around the fact that actually this this will just take a generation. And that generation, if you look back in 10 years' time or 20 years' time, will think, why on earth did we go and do things in this way for certain classes of business?
0: Yeah, possibly. Although uh, OpenAI, which you'll be familiar with, or chat GTP, the, the new Sam Altman, or new fairly well-established product uh, I, I thought it'd be quite fun to go in there and, and ask it some questions that might even help us do some of the podcast and uh like any <laughs> incumbent insurance company not any that's unfair the response i got was we're really busy now please come back later so i'm not too sure what the future <laughs> of ai is is uh, if one of the most well-funded most prolific ai tools out there is telling me to go and come back later uh, but maybe maybe there's hope around the corner.
1: Or or it's just a great marketing tactic to, to get you <laughs> back. I was talking to some of my team about it. I was talking online about it just over the weekend, actually, because someone was talking about Oliver Ralph's article in the FT, about insurance, and someone said, oh, you could probably get the same amount of insights from Chat GPT And I actually jumped into... Chat GPT, I didn't get the uh, please come back later. And I put the same headline in I asked it to write the article with this headline in the style of the FT. And I'll share it with you afterwards, actually. It's quite an interesting, uh, it's quite interesting what it came out with. It does have a good view using its large language model about what it
0: could go and do. If it does let me back into it, I want to write an article in the style of Robin Mertons about something. We'll probably take requests, so send your request <laughs> to Matthew Grant for a for a chat GPT in the style of Robin Mertons. <laughs> See how that one works. The other thing that happened back in 2017 was Travelers Insurance uh, acquired Simply Business. Do you mentioned SME earlier on? They're, they were and still are actually providing underwriting for. Small businesses, four hundred ninety million dollars. That was quoted as being paid for. And then, most recently, just interested to get your reaction on this, given some of the challenges in uh, in funding generally. The Hartford is invested in Series B with Superscript, also offering SME insurance, also out of the UK. Actually, forty five million pounds, fifty four million dollars. What's your take on that as we get into
1: twenty twenty three? Well, two, two things you've highlighted for me there. Number one, and having been in the US for now for two years or so. The UK, the maturity of the UK insurance market and our technologists, our insurance professionals, and the combination of the two importantly, never cease to amaze me about how mature and how far advanced they are in a market perspective. And I always get a sense of pride walking around Lime Street or the city more broadly about what insurance and what we've done in the UK. I, I absolutely think we are. At the leading edge of all those things. I think this is a true testament to that, number one. Number two, I can't remember when I started talking about SME, SMB, and I still believe it's probably the most sought after and untapped market globally to go after. So I'm excited to see it. I think it's a great testament, and I think you'll continue to see large incumbents world over acquire invest and make bets around snb insurance going forward and i think there's this there's this happy place between complex commercial that will always be broked and use agents and expertise to be fair in the us is very agent and broker driven more traditionally and in the uk as we all know that's all driven through price comparison websites and whatever else and this space in the middle that is snb and i think you've got subcategories of that, whether it's, you know, one to 10 employees, 10 to 100, 100 to 250. And as you go up through MLC or, or mid-level commercial or medium-large commercial, I think that is a untapped group that we'll see more and more people pour into.
0: No, I agree. I mean, and actually, we work very much for small business insurance ourselves, for instance, we mean 17 people. And I sort of put it out there, a request to say, who should we use for our business insurance? I mean, the reality was going digital was Actually, not an option. It's too complicated. I think this is kind of comes back to your AI point. But the the change for me, I think, I would say, in predictions from five years ago, would be not so much AI, but augmented intelligence, which or intelligent augmentation, which is where you combine the person and technology. So I think when you get to that point of sort of ten people for a business, and after all, we're not we're not doing anything that complicated at Instech. So you know, it's not like we need a lot of complexity. But there are questions you ask around people and management liability and cyber and all the other things, you probably still need a person involved. But that person can be more efficient by tapping into technology to give them the insights to to engage with their customer. Do you, do you agree or do you think there's actually going to be a way of doing bigger scale insurance?
1: This is back to the evolutionary point. And I think we've seen a huge amount of success. And I think a lot of the focus going forward is on that evolutionary point, back to your point about the bike shop. The product of insurance hasn't fundamentally changed the process of risk transfer hasn't fundamentally changed. The amount of information and data that's out there has exponentially grown. Therefore, the questions that we ask to understand the risk in more detail have gone up. But there's no need for us to go and get those manually. So we can actually use technology to do the pre-fill so that when we do get to the human in the loop, all that sort of insight is there for us to reaffirm and confirm not to go out and manually go and get simply business and superscript and so many others in that space are just augmenting data aggregation, bringing that back to one place. So it's all there allowing the experienced underwriter to make a human judgment that augments what goes on. And it's the same in motor racing and so many other places, you know, technologies that is a combination of technology plus insurance domain experience plus, plus, plus
0: to get you there. I agree. And I, I actually, the, by the time this goes out live, the podcast with Richard Hartley and Saitora will have gone out. So started off looking for data to provide inputs for commercial underwriting, initially in the UK. And, and what Richard realized a couple of years ago was that actually the problem is not shortage of data, there's lots of data, but it's just really hard for insurers to organize it. And to your point about expensive underwriters and underwriters assistant doing manual entry, the kind of efficiency now and the and the cost benefit is to figure out what of those risks coming in should just be rejected straight away because they're clearly out of appetite. Which ones can you bind and do straight through processing? And which ones still need some human intervention? So, you know, I would say the shift for me looking back on five, six years ago is yeah, an acknowledgement that innovation doesn't always have to be disruption, as you said. Sometimes it's getting stuff done more tidally and efficiently and reducing the cost. But it, I think this strong theme keeps coming through, which is you know, the, the intelligent use of those analytics to make the individual much more efficient in their day job. And yeah, I apparently enjoy it as well. No one really wants to be sitting there entering data into a spreadsheet.
1: You're right. And I think I do still believe the evolution versus revolution approach. I think the evolutionary approach for me is bottom up. How do we make our, our our processes more efficient and effective going forward? But top down has to be the, how do we reimagine this entirely? Which is where I think you then jump into things like embedded and whatever else going forward. But there's, there's no reason why you can't do both together. I think more and more people today are focused on the bottom-up to make what we do more streamlined and more effective. You you could almost argue it's the IVR of 10 or 20 years ago when we decided that you didn't need to speak to a human straight away; You could actually direct your call to the right person by using an IVR. Well, you look at how that's evolved over 20 years. I called my mobile phone company last week, and that IVR is no longer something that you do by pressing buttons on a phone, which I think drove us all mad over the last couple of years they've now pushed that capability out to your mobile phone so you actually do all that before you actually get through the call so it's, it's interesting to see how we keep evolving the same old things but they have but equally they keep evolving that makes sense
0: you know i love google nigel and i'll tell you why because i didn't know what ivr was when you started that conversation i googled it and i now know that it means interactive voice response so uh, i cheated a little bit on my ability to identify <laughs> acronyms so there you go <laughs> Ple- I'm pleased to see that. Keep searching. <laughs> no, I'd rather keep listening to you and keep talking, but I, I don't like to not know what's, <laughs> what you're talking about. i got another question for you on this term in tech. Adrian Jones, who we both know used to be at SCORE, now at Hudson Capital, recently said, uh, I think he's talking to Mark gage on his podcast, that the term insure is really needs to be retired because it's a bit confusing. And I, and I completely agree. I, people are using it for all sorts of different things. I guess there's two rated questions. Should we have a better term to describe what's going on that is more clearly distinguishing between, well, one distinction is between the technology and the people actually underwriting the risk? And if so, this is a really tricky one. How, how would you describe what people are doing with data and analytics and innovation and technology?
1: So I'm going to disagree with you and Adrian. I think I'm seeing Adrian next week, actually. Uh, and it's always a fascinating conversation. I love his insights and I love his presentations. He's He's both funny and insightful in all of these, I disagree with you because I actually think we do need that North Star or that direction to travel. So whether we call it insure tech, insurance technology, I can't think of anything else smarter than that right this second. But I do think that we need something that, that infuses the insurance and technology piece side by side to say, here, we're going to try this different to what we've always done. You know, back to your very first quote, I like that clear view of the thing in the desert that might be far away. That's says we have to get there. So I think InsurTech is as good as any other out there in the same way that Bintech changed the the narrative for leveraging technology in, I'm going to say, consumer financial services first and foremost. What would you change it for?
0: Maybe the problem is more that it, it needs to, a bit of a reboot or a rebranding because, it's a bit of a proxy, I find. Maybe it's different for you, that people think about it as, and you know, almost back to your disruption one, startups, a couple of people who have come in from outside the industry, come and tell the insurers they don't know what they're doing and they're going to change the world. Whereas the way you've just described it to me and the way I think about the technology and innovation, it could come from lots of different places, it come from new companies, come from established companies, being good at innovation, it could come from insurance companies themselves. So maybe the sort of middle ground is a redefinition or a re- a relaunch of the term insure tech, and then we can all use it happily in the context that it's not just startups and people saying crazy things about disruption.
1: Without, without question, well, our good friends over at McKinsey have this whole concept of horizon one, two, and three. And it's almost looking at the world from a, a one to three, three to five, five to 10, year, to 10 year lens. But I think that's also true. You could have insurtech that's focused on here and now, which might be better use of data and pre-fills to fill out a form for SMB insurance mid-term that might be something completely different and long-term it might be actually completely embedded and that thing never happens to take place at all but you could still use the phrase but in different contexts of a time horizon that would support what we want it to be I mean
0: but I, it does lead me on to question Nigel which is the differences you're finding between the how people consume financial products in the US and the UK or well, you can throw in any products but and if you alluded to it a little bit earlier on but I mean the UK started telephone insurance with Direct Line over 30 years ago. What's your experience been as a consumer as you've moved across from the UK to the US? I guess I'm fortunate in
1: one way that I knew exactly where to go and what to buy from an insurance perspective. And as I said earlier, I went straight to lemonade and it was a digital experience. So it was actually not much different than than how I would have purchased or acquired insurance insurance in the in the UK. But again, asking that question over dinner last night, people hadn't heard of Lemonade. I was surprised by it. It was was like, oh, okay, this is a New York-based thing about your point about marketing. Who do you use? And it was the traditional carriers that folks had used. And when you dug into why they'd use them, it was back to the generation. Oh, my parents used them, therefore I recognize the brand and whatever else. So one of my big observations is, and I think this is true for most financial services, people go to either their friends or their parents for insights and recommendations as to where and how they should acquire things. I don't think that's really changed over time. So for all the money that we spend on advertising, awareness, one of my big bugbears is actually education and how we educate people about what they need and what they should and shouldn't have. One of my big observations is that we still have a lot to crack. And in the US, it's as I said, it's very agent, it's very broker-driven of very informed, passionate people who are, helping people to understand what risks they should have and what they don't have. I think that market in the UK disappeared a long time ago. In the same way that IFAs, I remember independent financial advisors in the UK, when I first started my career, there was probably 120,000 IFAs. Now I'd argue there's probably less than 15,000 of those in the UK. And that's just an evolution over time. And I, you know, This is a whole debate that will go on forever and never be answered. There will always be a place for agents and brokers, but will their role change given the advent of technology and will we use technology to better support them do their jobs better in the same way that we do for underwriters i think the answer is absolutely yes you just have to look at some of the folks out here that are doing some really cool things in the agent space which might be the next disruption as in how do we help them do a better job to support their clients going forward
0: and then I just want to talk to you a bit about investment in insurance or insurers doing investment. My sense is that there's been a little bit of a resurgence of that. So if you go back to 2017 or so, a lot of companies started, or insurance companies had their investment arms, their strategic investment arms, their accelerators. A few of them got their fingers burned. But my view, and I know we're seeing quite a few people coming into space and actually delighted to have their support. Are you seeing that or are we maybe just seeing it through a sort of narrow lens?
1: The whole corporate venture capital, CVC space has been has been interesting to watch. You're right. I think going back a few years, everyone had to have their own division or otherwise doing things. I thought it had definitely quietened down. I've not seen a huge resurgence of that. I've probably seen more people get into the how do we go partner and bring the technology to go back to my point about scale to get it across the business. But I think coming out of these next couple of quarters, we'll probably start to see more and more of that. The folks I speak to in the venture capital space have always said to me anecdotally more than anything else that it's just got quiet given where the market is right now. I hadn't seen many more insurers get into that. And in fact, your point about Superscript is probably one of the first few ones I've seen at scale. I mean, You've seen travelers acquire Trove a few quarters back. It's not one that's peaked or hit my radar in, in the sense that it says they're all coming back very, very fast.
0: Yeah, I think we might be seeing them selectively maybe we are the leading edge of uh, successful insurance companies moving into this space because they're doing it much more i wouldn't say cautiously because that's the wrong word but thoughtfully maybe is the answer so without naming names for a few companies going back five years ago that were essentially open door for providing capacity on the basis that they were large enough not to worry about those that went wrong or at least so they thought and then realized that, that actually probably wasn't the right model whereas the organizations we see now i'd say are very clear on what they want to do, link it back into the core business. Back to your point about SME, a lot of it is actually around looking to provide capacity for that SME space. So they're actually getting the benefit both on the investment side and on deploying their own capacity, whereas before it might've been a little bit more on tools to help them underwrite as opposed to the MGA space. Anyway, I think we could probably talk more about that separately. Or-
1: so on that, though, you've brought in both capacity and investment. The two, I think, are very, very different. I think capacity appetite has changed dramatically over the last 12 months or so. And moving into this year, I think people are much more cautious about what and how they underwrite. But the investment side's different. And I think the other area that I've seen above and beyond SME is almost a resurgence into life insurance. And again, another good example of that is, again, out of the UK is uh, Ulife. And their investment, they had $120 million middle of last year from Daiichi, uh, which has allowed them to continue to grow. And again, another great example as they expand into the US and elsewhere. So I think you're seeing new categories get new flavors of investment from different organizations. And again, Asian money to uh, come to flow here.
0: And to just be clear, the investment investment and capacity, of course, are very different, but the investment is is to help sort of organisations that then can also provide underwriting as an MGA who also needs capacity. So the two go hand in hand, albeit, yes, they're very different. Pots of money. Yeah. And, and Nigel, what else is on your mind? I've been doing a lot of the asking questions and talking, but if I just threw it open there, is what else you're thinking about for 2023? What would you call up?
1: The whole embedded story I'm still excited by. We all joked about my article, God knows how many years ago, that had said, we have all the ingredients, but we just want cake, which got lots of laughs and jokes at the time. But in essence, was the very, very beginnings of the whole embedded conversation where, where it said we wanted the value added services, not necessarily the insurance. I still think that's true. I'm not sure there are many articles that go out there these days that don't mention embedded or how large organisations are able to plug into different distribution channels going forward. I think this is going to be a bold prediction, but I think if that's if that's going to take off, then that's this year. You know, that's that's your opportunity for large carriers to be able to embed through technology, through APIs, through microservices, and so much more to be able to plug into new distribution channels and distribute insurance capability, but then also back to that word I used in 2017, orchestrating with services that really matter, whether it's health, whether it's life or elsewhere. So actually, I don't think that's changed. I just think it's now on everyone's minds as to how they get part of that uh, action going forward. Uh, I'm quite excited by that. I'm not sure if I had this in 2017 or not, but the cyber story is not going away anytime soon. So uh, embedded number one, cyber number two, uh, there's a whole host of other cool things that I think are going on right now that will see us cautiously move forward. We haven't gone backwards in any way, shape or form. I think the first half of this year will be cautious. I think the second half of this year will be much more ambitious as we as we move out of you know better rates, hopefully uh, a better economic environment. I think we saw in the US last quarter, inflation was starting to ease and so much more. So as we get through some of those pressures, a post-pandemic world will be quite exciting to, to move into
0: with you i'm not quite sure the opposite of blue monday is but I, i sort of share your optimism i mean we forget as we look at the kind of challenges around us that we went through a pandemic we've got a war going on with russia and ukraine that pushed up gas prices and you know lots of other tragedies and costs and actually i think you know look at the news now coming out where the stock market is and who knows where it'll be when we go public with this but but the signs are inflation is going to come down gas prices are going down globally yeah, the, the underlying economy, I think, is good. The trend, the direction is in the right direction. That's the other thing I think about this sort of long view is, of course, you. in the short term, you know, things can go backwards, but the trend is in the right direction. So I think there is a lot to be positive about. A quick question, Nigel, and then we should let you go back to your job. You mentioned your article there. You know, I was a big enthusiast for writing. I was slightly scale back what's your perception of how people are engaging on long-form content i find it's a very good way to get my head around what i need to understand as a writer or former writer what's your view on long form and people's willingness to to consume slightly longer content than the usual bite-sized snap you might get on linkedin or social media of your choice
1: this is kind of why i took a year off on purpose to go just pause for a minute and see what's going on there are things that consistently come out with points of view that i pause and read because they've just done a really really great job of it i often describe twitter as the the coffee line that you jump into and you bump into someone you have a conversation and you can leave again like joining a, a conversation joining in and out linkedin is as you said this long longer form space where i do think you have to have more time or more thought or whatever else I don't think it's gone away. I think how people consume and what they consume has changed dramatically. I'm not sure, Matthew, you, me, or Robin are ever going to be on TikTok anytime soon. But it's back to that generational thing. Where do I go if I want to get my my son, I can't WhatsApp him. I can't SMS him. I can't email him. He doesn't do any of those things. i gotta go. got to go back to Discord. So it's about back to being where your audience is. And I suspect most of our audience is still on LinkedIn, Substack, or a blog, or whatever else it might be. So for me, for now, uh, LinkedIn is where I'm going to go to for my regular and consistent pieces, and Twitter for uh, uh cheeky engagement here and there.
0: Yeah, well, I didn't quite answer my question, but I, I'm going to take what I want to out of it. <laughs> I don't think long form is dead. I think, in a way, there's actually – what is being written now is, for the most part, high quality because it's sort of survived. I think Nigel, you might have to dust off your electronic pen and get back out there and write some more articles, as I as I will do, because actually, frankly, it's the best way to test learning is to write about something.
1: I, I couldn't agree with you that more. And actually, I, I've missed it. It was a purposeful decision, and, and it's 2023, and I'm back on. So watch out; they will be coming out. I won't say thick and fast, but they'll be coming out consistently, at least. But that's the one thing I've learned: is consistency like you do every Sunday morning. I know exactly where to go for my podcast. I know exactly one to send you as an SMS, I liked it, didn't like it, or what on earth are you talking about?
0: No, and I, I really appreciate that. The fact that I'm lying in bed and I get a text from you, it probably won't work so much when you're in the US, saying, I've listened to your podcast. And this is what I think it makes me worry about you getting up too early and me feeling very smug lying in. So <laughs> I'm good to know one person at least is listening to it, but uh, we should wrap up there. If anybody wants to see you face-to-face, I know you're in the US, you're back and forth in the UK, What's the best way to find Nigel and, and what should they be asking you about That's uh, you're going to respond to them? Best way
1: to find me is uh, on Twitter at Nigel Walsh or on LinkedIn. There's uh, plenty of Nigel Walsh's, but you'll see me because I'm always talking about making insurance lovable. I'm intrigued by the whole themes around AI, machine learning and no surprise cloud. And I think that's uh, a really interesting conversation that we're having with our clients right now.
0: Brilliant. Okay. Well, this has been great. I will uh, I will let you go and uh, look forward to seeing you face-to-face next time you're back over in the UK or might even sneak over to the US in the near future. Look forward to it. Thanks. Well, a quick one before you go. Now, we're really keen to know who's listening to this podcast and what you think. So if you have a moment, you'll find a link in the episode notes, or you can go direct to my post on LinkedIn about this podcast to show you like it, or better still, leave a comment. It's a real help. And if you'd like to find out how we at Instec are helping insurers and technology companies and why over 100,000 people engaged with us last year, then please do contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn or any of us. Hello at instec.co. That's it. We're done.